0: Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in earth and in, under... On the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The word of God for the people of God. Morning. It took me about, it took me until my mid-twenties to actually read Revelation. Growing up in a pretty middle-of-the-road Presbyterian church, the book felt almost off-limits. We just don't talk about the apocalypse much in the mainline, at least not in the revised common lectionary as the canon churches or the evangelical but too hip to talk about it churches that I've been attending since high school. I guess it's too scary for us, too violent and judgmental. We cede revelation to the fundamentalists, who are more than happy to take up the lake of fire. But here's the thing. I'm a little bit stuck on the end of the world. A lot of us are these days, at least most people under 30. There's a queer apocalypse survival skill share that gathers once a month in Atlanta. I and 250 of my closest friends have signed up to learn how to build fires and make rainwater drinkable to preserve vegetables and make medicine out of herbs. We talk about the destruction of the Everglades at parties and our pandemic escape plans in the car. We recycle and compost and buy used clothes and turn off the lights when we leave the room, knowing all the while that this is more for our own sense of control than any meaningful impact on the planet. With 73% of carbon emissions coming from the world's top 100 companies, it's hard to argue that biking to work really makes a big difference in the Earth's lifespan. And the more you learn about what it will take to minimize human displacement, say, or prevent wars over access to water, the more hopeless the whole project starts to feel. And that's where reading Revelation comes in. Right now feels pretty seriously like the edge of the abyss, maybe the ultimate abyss. And as far as I can tell, not enough church people are as freaked out as seems appropriate given the circumstances. It feels like a desperate time for a lot of us. And yet the church is not particularly interested in any desperate measures. We recycle our bulletins and maybe put solar panels on our roofs. But most Christians in the U.S. today aren't trying to stage an actual revolution. Churches are part of the American empire. And to be honest, it feels pretty comfortable. To make things worse, we Christians have been cozying up to power almost from the start. It's why John, a first-century preacher banished to the island of Patmos, wrote a letter we call Revelation to his church. See, John's congregation was living under the rule of the Roman Empire in 98 AD, but lots of folks were okay with that. They knew the Romans didn't understand Christianity and didn't want to, Magistrates and soldiers wanted everyday people to remember who was really in charge. That's it. And these Christians, who were born and grew up and had decent enough lives in the middle of said empire, figured that the Romans were basically right. Jesus was Lord in a spiritual, everlasting-to-everlasting way, but surely that transcended the physical. It didn't matter in a cosmic sense whether Caesar was in charge of the day-to-day or not. So there were persecutions of Christians in 98 A.D., sure, but only for the really stubborn ones. If you were more or less mainstream, you could get out of trouble with a single civic ceremony. Worshiping Caesar and cursing Christ wasn't supposed to be such a big deal, more like pledging allegiance than conversion. It was nothing worth the risk of resisting. But John begs to differ. If it seems like the empire offers life and threatens death on the basis of submission, he says, then look closer at what living means. Jesus lived a real life with a real-life body and a real-life death because he knew exactly how important our lives really are. His decision to live and die in God and for us refuted the power of the empire's claims over us. His resurrection isn't a denial of the importance of everyday life. It's a call to live so boldly that all the deadly forces of the empire are rendered obsolete. But the church folks didn't get it, and John was their pastor. He needed some way to show them the cosmic stakes, to unmask the imperial collusion inside and out of the church, to show the utter destruction that is the refusal of Christ's offer of life. And what follows isn't pretty. Scholar Tina Pippin calls John's imagery the ultimate colonized fantasy, one where God fights for God's people, destroying everything outside the faith. It's gruesome, misogynistic, and weirdly, the Christians aren't actually saved. You can't get a salvation to-do list out of Revelation to protect you from the end of the world. You just can't but I think there's something faithful in this rage and fear and ambiguity. John knew God was still working in the midst of an empire that plenty of decent church-going folks had given up resisting. That God wasn't absent, wasn't complacent, wasn't weak. The vengeful God John conjures up was a God in control of the ultimate chaos, an abyss of violence. And to be honest, in our current empire-induced environmental end of the world, sometimes I want a God like John's. Sometimes I want a Jesus who judges and fights. To be clear, I'm not saying the wholesale slaughter in Revelation is okay. But I do think we need the apocalyptic to talk about what's going on in our world today. We need metaphors that are good and weird. We talk about Jesus as a friend, or a king, or a doctor, or a counselor, but what about a Jesus who is 100% lion, 100% lamb, who's been slaughtered and is right next to a giant throne of God? What about a lamb that's got seven eyes and seven horns and possibly a two-edged sword for a tongue? What kind of Christ is a creature like that? The Greek word for lamb here tells us that this is not just a young sheep, it's physically small. Jesus, Lord and God, is a little lammy, A lammy we killed and who wouldn't stay dead and is now standing there waiting to judge us all. It's weird. It's, It's kind of terrifying. And in this era of climate collapse, when an animal's survival is largely dependent on how cute or useful humans think it is we need the threat of this lamb. Most of us avoid revelation, and for good reason. Horses swimming in blood for 200 miles, women slaughtered for the sake of rhetorical edginess, men as the only people worthy of heaven. There's violence everywhere, and all of it authorized, if not directly carried out by God. So the fact that the reading for today is all about people and animals throughout time praising scary sheep Jesus right before Jesus reigns destruction over the planet sounds downright absurd, more like pulp fiction than scripture. But we tell ourselves this story is holy, so let's risk trusting it for a minute. Everyone who ever was and everyone who is now all the bullfrogs and orangutans and all the truck drivers and the children cut up by Herod's army, all the librarians and libertarians and social workers and sex workers and lemons and leptons and ghosts, All of them are singing praises to the still-bleeding, seven-eyed lammy. All of them along with the angels. And they are heaping on everything that people think will make them okay in this world. Anything that might give them a shot at making it. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing piling it all at the lamb's hurt little hooves. Throwing all of our worldly possessions at a not-dead sheep. The sheep that is our king. One look at this lamb, and we're ready to give up everything we think will save us. Then we do it again. We take a collective deep breath and give up blessing and honor and glory and might louder this time and with more fervor because we couldn't quite get it right the first try. Forever and ever we cry and hope to God that this time it will stick. Why? Why does John see us cling to this wounded sheep Jesus, showering him with praise before he unleashes destruction upon the earth? What good news comes from a sword-tongued savior? If I'm feeling confident, which I rarely am these days, it's that God makes space for our cries of outrage and stories of vengeance, but does not end with them. And maybe it's just that there is, in fact, A scroll of secrets somewhere filled with plans that God has for me and for you and for the world that Jesus is reading and bringing forth. I don't want them to be bowl of wrath secrets. But I do want to know that God is in control, that our struggles aren't meaningless or unseen, that our praises are heard even though we're constantly mired in a system of sin I'm not sure what to do with this longing, or really what to say about it. The Gospel of John just called it thirst. Christians believe that Christ both came and will come, that we were and are and will be saved, that the future doubles back on itself to come and get us, that the ravages and cruelties and slow-moving stupid decisions that make up our species can't have the last word. We see the seven-eyed lamb crucified and wise and know that our faith is more complicated than we can ever ask or imagine. We do not have the answers, and it unsettles us. We like to pretend that we do. But if there's one thing we know, it's that we do have a future. As Tina Pippin would say, this is an endless conversation with the end of the world. We'll never get in the last word. Amen.